There we go. Okay. This morning we are studying Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12. Last week we were talking about the new covenant. Hebrews 8 is describing the new covenant, quoting from Jeremiah, which we were discussing last week, that tells us about the new covenant. So it says in verse 12, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So the new covenant is going to be a removal of sin, a pardoning of sin, a making people right with God. As we said last week, causing them to know the Lord. If you're in a new covenant, you do know the Lord. And many other special promises. So we have entered the new covenant by God's grace. Now, I told you last week that I was going to read to you Paul's sermon. I've been talking, let's see, Acts 13, 16, if you want to turn with me. We've been talking a lot about preaching. We were talking about it at the conference yesterday. And I'm going to talk about it again because in Philippians, Paul is on trial for a defense of the gospel, he says. And what we're seeing is that it's very important to understand how preaching is supposed to work and how the gospel is supposed to impact people. One thing to remember when reading sermons in the book of Acts is that Paul and Stephen and Peter and the other preachers, when they were preaching to Jews, they were preaching to people that already knew that they were sinners and they needed atonement. Because they had the Day of Atonement every year. And they had the law and it was telling them the law was fully part of their life. So they knew they were sinners. Now, when we preach to Gentiles, you definitely have to tell people about the law and sin because they may think that they're just fine the way they are. The Jewish people knew that very much. And so what Paul emphasized when he preached to the Jews was that Jesus was the Messiah. That's what the issue was. They needed to know that Messiah came, and he's the one that takes away sins. But let's read the sermon. Acts 13, starting with verse 6. <clears throat> 16, I mean 16, excuse me. 16. And Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, that would be God-fearing Gentiles, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. And for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And notice how he says that he put up with them. Uh, God puts up with us too, doesn't he? And, there, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. And after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will, who will do all my will. From the offspring of this man, according to promise, God brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. And after, God had, after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, 
What do you suppose I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the word of this salvation is sent out. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And they thought they had found no ground, and though they had found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And then they had carried out all that was written concerning him. They took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appears to those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he also said in another psalm, Thou wilt not allow thy holy one to undergo decay. And for David, after he had served the purpose of his fathers in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers under what decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And, and, um, and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all the things that you could not be freed from the law of Moses. And then he says, Take heed therefore, so that the thing spoken of in the prophets may not come, may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel, and perish. For I accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, even though someone should describe it to you. <laughs> so that's what Paul preached to the Jews. Interesting sermon. He started with the Old Testament. He went through David, John the Baptist, Jesus. He indicted the people of the sin because they were the ones that delivered Jesus up to death. He proved from the Scriptures that Jesus was raised from the dead, which is interesting. Because How would you do that? Because the Old Testament, where, where is the Old Testament prophecy about that? Well, the same way Peter did. He said, the, the Holy One, thou wilt not allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. And it couldn't have been David, because David is still in the tomb. That's what Peter said. So it must be applied to Jesus. And here's how we apply it to Jesus. Um, um, thou thou uh, will not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. So Jesus was raised from the dead, so it must apply to him. And they preached the resurrection and the forgiveness of sins. So it, it's interesting to me that when the, the apostles preached the gospel, they weren't worried about dumbing it down so everybody could easily get it. They didn't come up with some little token cliche to, to just put out there. But they preached from the Scriptures. They expected people to understand and to learn from the Scriptures. They preached uh, the resurrection from the dead and the need for forgiveness of sins. And so we should not be uh, ashamed of the gospel and we should not be afraid to preach it fully and with authority and not worry that, oh, it's going to be too much or they won't get it or they won't like it. Because Paul said, I know most of you aren't going to listen to this. The Bible says so. 
And he quotes this verse that says they're going to reject it. They won't believe it even if it's preached to them. But nevertheless, he preached it to them. Why? Because God has chosen the foolishness of the message preached to save those who will believe. So, we're going to continually reinforce that, that we should not be ashamed. Diane. Yeah, he was not only telling them, they knew they were sinners, but he was telling them what their specific sin was. Rejecting Messiah. And so, I guess they didn't know about Seeker Sensitive back then. <laughs> they hadn't gotten that book. You know, how are you going to be popular if you tell people things like that? Well, but God, because see, the reason the apostles preached like that was they knew that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that he was the one who would do the work of convicting and saving people. All right. Let's go back to verse Hebrews 8.12. Now, having done this whole message, promise in the Old Testament, I'll remember their sins no more. God is a God who forgives sins to those who come to him on his terms. God is loving. God is merciful. God forgives sins. But we've got to come to him on his terms. Right? Amen. Is that right, Dan? Double Oh, wow. <laughs> I haven't got a triple amen before. Okay. All right. Uh, Dan, uh, Psalm 25, 7. Dean, Isaiah 43, 25. And Brian, Jeremiah 33, 8. Denise, uh, Jerem, you're the designated family reader. <laughs> Jeremiah 50 and verse 20. Keith, you got a Bible there? Micah 7, 19. Steve, you got one? Just the New Testament. Um, all right, let me give you one. Acts 13.38. What did I say to you? Micah 7.19. And then Bert, Romans 11.27. Leif, 1 John 1, 7 to 9. And Tyler, Revelation 1.5. Okay, back over here. Psalm 25.7. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me, Lord, for thy goodness sake, O Lord. So he's, David's asking for forgiveness of sins based on God's character of being kind and good and merciful. God is a merciful God. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. How do we know he's merciful? David put himself into God's hands because he knew he's merciful. Okay, Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am he that blotted out thy transgression for mine own sake, and I will not remember. That's interesting. He says, I'm going to blot out your transgressions for my sake. Amen. Now, why would God forgive the sins of Israel for his sake? It seems like it would be for their sake. Yeah, they were his people. And by forgiving them, he showed his nature and his character to the whole world. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, that I wrote a whole paper on that uh, one time um, for, called For Thy Name's Sake. And I traced that theme through the Bible. And God is bringing glory to his own name by calling forth a people, and the Old Testament was Israel, forgiving their sins, and then using them as a testimony to show God's nature to the whole world, that he's a loving God who keeps his promises. Why is there still an Israel today? Because God's a loving God who keeps his promises. And so there's a testimony just in the nation of Israel. And he does it for his sake. Because <laughs> he's the one that named these people his people. Okay, uh, Denise. Jeremiah 33.8. Oh, I did. Oh, I'm over. I got jumped ahead here. Sorry, Brian. I didn't mean to overlook you. Jeremiah 33.8. I just wanted to make sure you're alert. Jeremiah 33.8. I will cleanse them from all the guilt and iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will forgive all their guilt and iniquities by which they have sinned and rebelled against me. So that's God's mercy that he would forgive sins. Okay, Jeremiah 50, 20. In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be stopped, but there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, but they shall not be found. For I will pardon those that you might deserve. Amen. See, a lot of times this is promised. Micah 7, 19. Okay, that's fair game. Wow, unchanging love. Wow, that's a fantastic passage. God is going to dump their sins in the sea. In the Bible, for the Jews, the sea was a bad place, but the one thing the sea stood for was somewhere where you went and never came back again. Okay, that's so ominous sea in the Bible. And so if your sins are cast in the sea, that's a good thing because you don't want your sins. And they won't come back once they go into the sea. That's why Jonah says a marvelous story. He went into the sea and actually came back. And they, that's a miracle as far as they're concerned. Okay, Acts 13.38. Uh, be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, that's not the same passage I was just quoting, yeah. Can I make a comment on that? Sure. Uh, I don't know the answer to this, so that this is just for the talk. On the word forgiveness, I, in, in remission, when it's translated, is it the same word or is it separate? I think they're two different words, but they're talking about the same concept using two different kind of words to describe nuances of it. Because in the Old Testament, you know, they, they, had, they had sacrifices for, for fellowship offerings, for peace oh, yeah. offerings, uh, and for sin offerings. And, and forgiveness seems to me like it would be you know, your, your sin offering or your yeah, I think Paul Paul's definitely talking about that because he's talking about that Jesus died for sins and he was the one offering that God would accept. That's true too. It's, it, there, there are so many aspects to redemption and atonement and the Bible addresses 
all of them, in one sense, there's this idea of expiation. And what that means is that God's wrath is directed against the sinner. And the blood atonement averts it. This is also, and that's also used, described by the term propitiation. And that word propitiation has a noun form, propitiatory, which is the same word used for the mercy seat. Right? So the mercy seat is a propitiatory. It's a place where God accepts this payment and, and his wrath against sin is averted. Forgiveness is the canceling out of our debt that we owed to God. The wages of sin is death. And so forgiveness, the death's taken away. Now, there's also the concept of justification that has also to do with this. And justification would be a righteous, holy God accepting into fellowship somebody who by themselves would not be considered just. And how does he do so? Well, he accepts Christ's righteousness as it's imputed into our account. So, there's a lot to be said about that topic, isn't it? Yeah, the thing is, on, on Scripture, like we were talking before, this is a translation of the Word of God. In yeah, English, so right. A lot of times, uh, when it's translated, it might, the same word might be translated one way in one Scripture, another way in another Scripture. Yes. And sometimes when you've got a question on what it really means, you need to kind of look up the Greek and maybe yep. compare you to what the actual, actual word means. That, that's very true, Steve. And there's some fantastic tools now for English-speaking people that haven't studied Greek. I have one, it's, it's a little obsolete now, called a Bible Master, which is a new, the New American Standard Bible uh, on a computer. I got it on here. And it has a function in there where you can select the verse, and it'll show you each word in the, in the verse, and then it'll tell you what the Greek word is. Okay, And then you can click on that Greek word, and it'll pull up a glossary, and then when you get into the glossary, it'll say whatever the word is, and then you can say details, and it'll pull up another box, and then you can say verses, and it'll tell you every verse where that Greek word's found in the New Testament. Great tool. So if anybody really wants to get into this kind of Bible study, there is software that can just replace like a whole library full of books and do the, work, the same thing. So... Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Sometimes you have to look because they may do it differently. Steve? There's another similar uh, thing called the Blue Letter Bible. It's out on uh, PayPal.org. Okay. And it says basically the same thing. It starts with the King James Version. You can also put in uh, many other versions. And it also has um, uh, a source that you can go to. And probably five or six different commentaries as well as all those resources you just listed. Cool. Yeah. Amen. And if you're ever going to lead a Bible study, that it would be good to get one of those tools. And if you want to start a home Bible study, you know what the best way to learn the Bible is? Teach a Bible study. And people come to me and say, how can I really learn the Bible? I say, well, you need a deadline and you need an audience. <laughs> now, that, you can do it other ways. But there's nothing like a deadline to motivate you to study. And there's nothing like an audience to make you want to know what you're talking about. <laughs> you don't want to say, come to my house for Bible study. We're going to study First John 1. And then they all get there and you go, gee, I don't know. <laughs> so <clears throat> get some. you can do that. Anybody can do that that wants to host a Bible study. Just open up your home some evening. Have some coffee and donuts. That will bring out Minnesotans. 
<laughs> Better yet, brownies. And uh, um, take a passage. See, th- th- we were talking yesterday about this whole purpose-driven thing. Well, they're trying to make it easy. This guy's going to do all this stuff, and then you, just, you don't have to do that. You just follow this guy's book. But the problem is you don't get the Bible. You get somebody's philosophy. What I would say is that any, you can do this. If you open your home, um, take a book of the Bible and get some of those resources like Steve's talking about and just study. Get, take the verses. That's how I do it. I just print them out out of my computer. Look up cross-references. Look up the Greek words if you need to. Find out what some of the issues are. Maybe you want to read a commentary or two. And have people come. Let them bring any version they want to bring. If they bring a bad one, we'll just correct them. Okay. Somebody shows up with a message and reads it and go, what? <laughs> okay, but bring the New American Standard. Or, I, I Personally, I think we should either be using the King James, the New King James, or the New American Standard. Or if you're fairly new to biblical terminology, sometimes the NIV, but I don't really care about it, the nearly inspired version. <laughs> but <it's, laughs> but uh, Take some of these Bibles and sit together, like we're doing, and open it up. And I'll tell you what, that sort of thing, uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That sort of thing is powerful. It's a work of grace, and it's the way God will change your lives. And you don't need to be a seminary professor or student or anything else. You just need to be a Christian. Keith. Amen. There's a lot, even in the purpose-driven life stuff you're talking about yesterday, that if you're being labeled an outcast, a pariah in your church, well, that'll drive you. Everybody else, normally you think one thing and everybody else thinks the other, you're usually wrong. Okay. But there are instances where that doesn't happen. You've got to go back to the word of right. self-defense for some of this. It's a very valid thing. Yeah, you got to go back to the word and not back to common consensus. Because, like what Keith was saying, what if you were Martin Luther? In his case, everybody else was wrong, all right. But he had to go back to the scripture. And so, if you're, if you're, uh, well, like, in a sense, that's what I'm doing. I'm saying most of the evangelical church is wrong. Well, that's a pretty bold statement to be making. Well, how can you defend that? Well, you better just have scripture, 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 because you figure some smart people are going to come after you. And you better know that it's the Scripture. And that's why we really teach the Word continually, because it's the only way we can know that we're not going nuts because we're not following the same thing everybody else is. Do you ever get the idea of my nuts? I only get that idea. <laughs> no, you already knew I was. I was just wondering about you. I'm crazy for the Lord. So, all right. Okay, uh, Bert, Romans 11:27. That's, and that's, the reason I had that one in there is that that is a yet future prophecy. It's an application of an Old Testament to future. Because 11.20, Romans 11.25 says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of this mystery that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And then 
all Israel be saved. And then there's that verse that he says. So at the end of the age, as we were talking last week, we're in the new covenant now. Israel's been regathered to the land. The promises were originally made to them. And God is going to also bring Israel into the new covenant. And it's going to happen the way Bert just read. He takes away their sins right out of this new covenant promise. So I believe that that will literally happen. Okay, late, 1 John 1, 7 through 9. Amen. <laughs> if we say we have no sin, we're deceived. The truth is not in us. But if we confess that we're sinners, God will forgive us. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. All right. There you go. One, uh, no, Revelation 1 5. We're going to end up in Revelation here. Hmm. Well, that's a good verse, but I don't know why I had it on here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got to bring revelation. <laughs> I do that every once in a while. Maybe I'm wondering something in the context there. I know, I, I, I know one thing that it says in there. Maybe what I was looking for is that he has the keys of, of Hades. That's okay. That was it. There it was. Oh, so it was your fault, Tyler, not mine. <laughs> See? Thought I, made, I, thought, I thought I made a mistake. I should have known. The, I thought that was in there. He freed us. His blood frees us from our, from our sins. Do people need to know that? Amen. They need to know that. Um, verse 13. Hebrews 8.13 When he said a new covenant... He has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. That's an interesting passage. Some have pointed to this as evidence that Hebrews was written before 70 A.D. because they still had their system going. And perhaps, probably, the author of Hebrews knew that Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple. So maybe that's in here. It's like, Okay, this is going to disappear, which it did not too so long after this was written. But, but nevertheless, uh, this old covenant, which was, we talked about earlier, was the Mosaic covenant. It's going to disappear. It's not going to be a valid means for people to come to God. You cannot bring sacrifices under the old covenant system any longer and go to before God and find forgiveness of sins. Why not? Because once Jesus died for sins. His blood is the only payment that God will accept. And not having once for all uh, laid down his life, and that payment has been made, no one can come by some other means, even ones that used to be valid before them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we, I talked to a couple people at the conference yesterday 
about some of the things we were discussing. And interesting, interesting to talk to people from all different. There was a lady from Des Moines that came up here. Um, and some people that normally would never hear the kind of stuff that we're talking about. And they were saying, well, why are people so attracted to these things? You know, what Brian Flynn was talking about and what Jan was talking about. Did you, you know, one of the things that was striking was those people on that video that were mesmerized, millions of them. Unbelievable. They're just like, can you see how Antichrist could get a worldwide following? You could just see what's going on. Well, anyhow, so people were asking me, what is so attractive? Why do people do these things? And I said, it's this very same thing that, that was behind this whole issue in the book of Hebrews. Jesus in heaven, at the right hand of the Father, the heavenly holy place, is invisible. We can't see it. It's intangible. We have to come by faith. We believe in Him whom we have not seen. And we know that He's there because of our faith, and we know that God raised Him from the dead, but we have no personal access to with our physical senses. And what these other things are offering is just that. That one book, uh, Seeing is Believing, says you can experience Jesus now with all five physical senses. Both to both. A spiritual version, or there's a sixth sense, this one says. And so they're offering a tangible experience for people that I believe are that really boils down to a failure of faith. We, we can't believe in this Jesus. Where did he go? Just like they said with Moses, where did Moses go? We don't see him. Let's build a calf. We can see that. They're wanting something else. And this is what was going on here. The high priest was still doing his annual thing. They were still doing their sacrifice. They still had all the... They must have sewn up the curtain. I don't know what they did. They probably hung another one. <laughs> but, but, and so the Hebrews are saying, well, this Jesus, we can't see. We just hear you preaching about it. But we can go down to the temple and we can see what they're doing. And it's more tangible. It seems more real. And that's why uh, I think we're tempted. Uh, Bert? Well, you know, uh, Bert, when I wrote that article that on this thing, you came up to me and said, how did, how did I know all that stuff? You used to be into that. Yes. Until what, when? Sorry, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Bert, Bert uh, was, if you haven't heard his story, it's a very interesting one, but he was fully into this kind of Unitarian type thing, Universalist. Well, that's another one. You've had all kinds of ones. <laughs> well, anyhow, a guy brought Bird here and sat him down. I still remember that day in Sunday school. And I was talking against everything Bert believed. He's still here. <laughs> he's still here. Yes. I think it's because people are, like you're saying, attracted to something tangible where they can see. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we're going to get eventually Hebrews 11 where it says that faith is the evidence of things not seen. That is not seen 
is taken as for granted. It doesn't say um, faith is evidence of things not seen unless you're lucky enough to have an apparition of Mary. Okay. Um, yeah, Dan, then we need to get going here. Well, it's spiritual erotic. There's four types of love, and the lowest is eros, and God says there's pleasure in sin for a day, then a copy. Figure it out. Mankind wants eros, spiritual spiritual pleasure. What should be easier today is that to be preached today, and you would love it, that God's going to bless you with great, great blessings and money, or that God's going to bless you with laying down your life for your brother today. Which would you like? Spiritual blessing of money. So mankind draws to the spiritual erotica, the lowest form of love. It's pleasure and sin for a day. And the Christians draw towards that too. So they're always baited. That's why Paul says, be careful when I leave you. The wolf in sheep clothing is going to come and disperse the flock. How? He's got to offer you something. And it's spiritual erotica. Give a dollar, get a hundred. And agape love is the highest form of love where you lay down your life for your brother. How many people... Going to want to do that? I have to be honest. I would like a spiritual blessing or money too. So the Christians are easily baited. That's why God says be yeah. careful. That's why they're drawn to it. Let's be honest. They're drawn to it because of their own lust. Well, you, Christians have lust. Well, you know what? Uh, you know what the antidote is is a continual yes. mega doses of the Word of God. <laughs> but you ask, why are they drawn? You're talking yeah, mega-dose. it's just they're on milk. The Christian church was on milk. Paul says, I can't get you on meat. Yeah, I know. So they're drawn to the to the carnal. Well, let's go, let's go to some meat here. Hebrews nine one, Hebrews nine one. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and earthly and the earthly sanctuary. Now, it's going back to the tabernacle here. Even though at the time the Hebrew Christians would be interested in the temple, this material here is all descriptive of the tabernacle, not the temple. Yeah, the predecessor. The same idea was there in the tabernacle, only it was portable. See, once they got to Jerusalem, they didn't need portability anymore, so they built a more permanent structure, Solomon's temple. All right, so, but this description is tabernacle description in the wilderness, not temple description. Now, even the first covenant had the regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. And this is distinct from the heavenly sanctuary. The Bible is claiming that Jesus' blood was poured out before God in the heavenly sanctuary and that he's, he's there as an intercessor for us in the heavenly sanctuary and that, the, and that that's how we draw near to God through Jesus who's in the heavenly sanctuary. Okay, uh, where was I? Noel, Exodus 25, 8. We're going to read a few descriptions of, of these type of things. Um, Pat, Ezekiel 43, 11. And, Bill, do you want to do one? I'll try. Yeah, you're going to try. Okay. Well, it's only it's in the same chapter where we're in. Hebrews 9. See if you can find it, Bill. Hebrews 9, 10, and 11. It's actually the, the very chapter we're in. Okay, so let's go to Noel with Exodus 25, 8. Okay, so the point of the sanctuary that was built in the wilderness was that they might have God dwelling in their midst. All right? Yes? The whole concept, and it seems to me that we want to build a sanctuary so we can get close to God, so God can dwell in our midst. And it's a house for God that we can come to. That's what kind of you come to my 
really what it's much more so is it, it holds God back from killing us when he comes in our midst. So we're protected when God comes down, we don't get wiped out. Amen. Yeah, you're actually you're you're, you're absolutely right. I, if we didn't have all this stuff yeah. around and God come down, there wouldn't be anybody to do when I did a study on the book of Leviticus one time, uh, it was an interesting thing to study the entire book of Leviticus and see what all was going on. And that was the impression. If you, if you read Leviticus and study what it has to say, what you end up seeing is that all this stuff was to keep the people clean lest they get wiped out as they approach God, that, including the priests themselves. And, and as I was studying Leviticus, I got this idea that if you were literally there doing all of that, if you were a Jew, even if you weren't a priest, because you still could become unclean and you couldn't, uh, you know, come approach, um, all of these things that might make you unclean, and they're not, unclean doesn't mean sinful, because some of the things were just ordinary life that you couldn't possibly avoid. Um, you know, like monthly cycles and all kinds of things that went on that made you unclean. It wasn't sin, it's just that, you had to go through certain purification as these as life goes on. And so they had this idea that just me living, I'm unclean, all right? And I need something in order to be uh, near God. So God there with this tabernacle and is right. It's like it's protecting the people from dying, which was their concern at Sinai. That's why they wanted Moses to go up. They thought they would die, and they were probably right. <laughs> God's going to kill us. <laughs> and so they they were, the Jewish people had an incredible sense of the holiness of God that was just built into their everyday life that I think is, is, is something that we should know. Yes, Dean. The temple was so thick, I think people should kind of go Yeah. Yep. Okay, so then the next one was Ezekiel 43.11. What's that? 43, 11. Well, see, the reason I had that as cross-reference is that this verse says, had regulations of divine worship. Everything was stipulated. It was precisely and in detail stipulated. And they had to follow a lot of regulations. And they had to do it the way God said. So, what did they know about God through that? Well, that you've got to come to God on His terms. He didn't say you just do a however you feel, see fit and that'll be good enough. He, he stipulated everything. That's a bad thing. But he didn't come on his terms. Then you, he died in vain. You wasted his time coming to die and shed his blood. Yeah. And in the testament. It's a blasphemy to say you could come any other way. I know. Way. I, I understand that. And so they understood that in the Old Testament. And so what, what's going on here in Hebrews is that he had all these regulations and it had to be just such and so because God told them how they had to come to him. How much more so in the New Testament now that he sent his son to die do we have to come to him on his terms? Okay. And this flies in the face. It's just modern understanding of religion, that of a pluralism and self-determination. Yes. Yeah, that's in Hebrews uh, 6, I think. 
Yes. I sometimes feel like it should be that there should just be this repentant heart. Sometimes you preach a gospel where there isn't repentance. And also there's water baptism and also the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what element do you talk about? Well, I believe that that's in Hebrews 6. He's wanting to tell him about the Melchizedek priesthood, which leads to the high priesthood of Jesus. And he says, well, I can't because I have to go back and redo these elementary doctrines that you should already know. And I think it's just basic Christian doctrines, in my opinion, not Old Testament. Baptisms, plural. Yeah, well, the baptisms that the New Testament mentions several. There's obviously baptism in water, and there's baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. Uh, but I would, which is probably to do with suffering, but the two for sure, water and the Holy Spirit, because they're mentioned again in 1 Corinthians 10 where it, by type when it said they went through the sea and the cloud, which would be tip, typological of baptism of water and the Holy Spirit. So those are the two main ones. Where it says that John came to prepare the way for the Lord, yeah. he baptized with the baptism for repentance. Right. Repentance. We, we have a nature that says we can't change our spots. You know, we can't change our leopard can't change spots. Right. We can't. So, but, but in your mind, you can have an attitude of repentance. Yes. And, and sometimes I think people feel like they can come to a Christian and just go out and do Yeah, and the reason for those kind of attitudes is just a failure of preaching the whole counsel of God. Yeah, if you, you could go to church forever and not hear a lot of things and you don't have no idea. And it's doing a disservice to the people, in my opinion, even though it attracts a bigger crowd. I think it's still doing a disservice because let's assume we have this bigger crowd because we don't talk about some of those things. Blood atonement, averting God's wrath, repentance. Who wants to hear all that negative stuff? I was just talking to somebody this morning who visited a church that was doing the secret thing, and it was like a big party with just a few ideas, but all the negative ones expunged. And here's, here's the problem. If in that kind of a situation where you take out all the negatives and you only talk about love and joy and nice things, and none of these kind of things we're talking about, um, all, let's say all these people come in. Some of them, because we were talking about yesterday or earlier today, God's a merciful God. And some people may actually come in and figure out enough. Maybe the words of a song somewhere has the gospel in it. Or somewhere they have, there's a pew Bible they might dig into. They might actually get saved. They may. But then what a disservice to actually be a regenerate Christian who's never being told what's necessary so you can grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. All right? So it's, given, it's a disservice to the people who are actually saved. And another way is a disservice to the, the seekers because they're not being told. Yeah, they're not being they're not being told God's terms about what's necessary to come to God. So that's why I'm willing to go out in print and on the radio and, and battle against this movement because I think it's doing a disservice to everybody. Um, because those few that actually do get saved through that could would have been saved through the real gospel. You know, it's not like they, they would have been lost otherwise. I mean, Schuler says that. You know what Schuler says? He, he's, he invented this. Schuler says, I'm the last hope. He says, the Crystal Cathedral is here, 
as the last line of defense, the last hope for the people who have given up on religion. You know, if they wouldn't go to any other church, or they wouldn't go to any other religion, but they'll come here. So I'm here for those people that otherwise they wouldn't have anything. He says, he says that. Have you heard him say that? I've heard him on TV, what have you. But now, but the question is, if you only had the hour of power as your source of religious information, have you ever watched it? Yeah, you go to hell because you go right to hell because he said there is no such thing as sin. Preaching that negative that God would say you're a sinner, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How dare you preach that? Okay, you go to hell. <laughs> okay, well you said it uh, the very blunt way. <laughs> All right, that's what happens. So I guess it really isn't much good having the last line of defense if it doesn't actually bring anybody to the Christ. It would be uh, my father and mother-in-law had an interesting experience. They were going to this Browns conference down in Okoboji that they have every year for the Christian Missionary Alliance. There was a guy that died about 30 years ago named Brown that was that everybody liked. So they had a Browns conference, and it, every year they go to this and they. It's, you know, evangelical preaching. Well, one year, the music team was from um, the Crystal Cathedral. They brought these very, very uh, talented musicians that came in from the Crystal Cathedral. And all this stuff was going on, and the people were responding to it. But the music team was doing their stuff, and, the, and it just fell flat. Even though it was very good musically, people were going, hmm. Well, the, and so... My father-in-law felt sorry for the people because they were just flopping so badly at the thing and getting such a bad response that they, I think they, I don't know if they had lunch with them, but they invited them to come over. They have a trailer down there in Okoboji. Was that what, do you remember the story, Diane? You don't even remember. This is from about seven, eight years ago. But, he, but Bob was telling it. He maybe told him when we were out fishing and he wouldn't have heard it. He says, um, <laughs> well, when we're in a boat, you've got a lot of time to talk. <laughs> so, so you told me the story. Well, they were talking to them, people, because they felt sorry for them. And the people, they weren't Christian. They didn't know anything about the gospel. And the reason they weren't being received at this Browns conference was these people were evangelicals. And they could tell these people were just like secular singers, even though they had some religious words to it. But they, but they were in the music team from Crystal Cathedral, and they weren't Christian because they had never heard the gospel. They didn't even know what, well, what's, what's the difference about this Browns conference and what are you people doing here? They didn't understand it. So Diane's folks told them about what they believed, and they, it was new to them. So you can be part of the professional staff of the Crystal Cathedral and not have any clue about what the gospel's all about. Are you still getting your finger in there, Bill? Pull it. Don't, don't lose it now. All right, here's your... Okay, you're very patient. Okay, uh, this is Hebrews 9, 10, and 11, if you found it. Okay. Yeah, just read 10 and 11. Okay, that's, that makes it very clear. What, way to go, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that, that makes it clear what the contrast is. I wanted us to see that up front because it might be a few days, weeks before we get to 
firsthand. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so we're having a contrast between the earthly one pitched by man and the heavenly one pitched by God. And the better one is in heaven, and God pitched it. Amen. Now, what, what exactly that means, we can't know until we get there. You know, is there literally like a spot in a tent that really looks like a tent that we would imagine? We, we can't know these things. It, 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 it's not really, it'll be much better than anything we can imagine. And Paul, who saw something, unlike everybody now who goes to heaven, Paul didn't write about it when he got back. Remember, remember in 2 Corinthians 12, where he says he saw inexpressible things not lawful for a man to utter? But one of the words that Paul used to describe what he saw was inexpressible. Now, why would he be able to see something inexpressible? Because in another realm of reality, you don't have a language for it. If, you, if, it were, if time travel were possible, which is not, but they make movies about it, but if you were to be able to transport somebody from the ancient past into the present and have them walk along and see computers and telephones and all this stuff going on, and then they, but they have no language, they just see it, they don't have a language, and you send them back to tell everybody what they saw, what would they be able to say? Yeah, they would say, I can't tell you what I saw. It's way different than anything we know, but I can't tell you what it is because there's no words in that ancient language for computers, telephones, telegraphs, and what have you. We don't have words in our language for what heaven is actually like other than the ones that God gave us that are probably analogical. In other words, they're taking analogies from what we do know to describe heavenly realities, but it's only partially known. And, and it says somewhere the half has not been told <laughs> in the King James. Or was I just in a gospel song? Is there that phrase in the King James? Well, that must be in a gospel song. I know I remembered it from Bible college when I was using the King James, but it could also have been an old gospel song. Anyhow, um, we will start up with verse 2 next week. Hebrews 9, verse 2. And this morning, the sermon is going to be from Philippians 1. To give you a little preview, verse 12 says... I want you to know, my brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the progress of the gospel. And he was in jail. So, okay, that's going to be the sermon. All right. God bless you.